We first meet Eustace Scrub, Eustace, Eustace Clarence Scrub in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's a miserable, never-wrong boy that C.S. Lewis describes as nearly deserving of his name. Cousin of the Pevensey kids, he's tossed into the sea with them on one particular maritime adventure. And what we initially find from that adventure is Eustace's diary. It's full of complaints and silly things. He insults the ship, the Dawn Treader, and demands that he's brought before the British consul. Nothing that can't, be, that can't happen in uh, Narnia. He refuses to believe that Reepasheep, the giant talking Narnian mouse, is anything other than a circus act. He's quite insufferable, constantly defending himself, justifying all his actions. And what we find is that he's just angry, and angry at everyone, mad that he's even in this situation. Today, I'm going to be talking about another angry character named Jonah. As you know, we've been diving, pun intended, into the book of Jonah this summer, unpacking the theme of God's mercy and his merciless prophet. What I have is the privilege today of finishing out this week and the next in the book of Jonah, and really where I think the meat of the book, the point of the book, hits home. And so my question for us today from this text that we're going to be looking at is this. How are we like Eustace Scrub? Now, I'm sure that the way that I described describe Eustace is never any of you in this room, but have you ever found yourself defending your actions, justifying yourself against your friends, your family, your spouse? Maybe you've exploded in anger and there's no convincing you that there's possibly some fault of your own. Or maybe things just aren't up to par with your standards, so you sulk around, angry at the world. You're late on a homework assignment, and you give your teacher a million and a half excuses as to why it's not done. Your project that was due for work, it won't get done in time, and now you have to figure out how to tell your boss that, but you know what? You always have the partner to blame, because it was their fault. How do we justify ourselves? Well, I can't possibly cover everything that that question entails. How do we go about justifying ourselves in that way, in these ways that Eustace has done? But I can cover it at least the way that the text covers it today. We're going to look at what's behind Jonah's anger and see how we might too get there sometimes. So how do we justify ourselves? And maybe more concretely for this text is, how do we arrive sometimes at being angry at God? We're going to find out, so I would like for you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 10. Again, that's Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Again, uh, I'd like to thank Eric for doing a great job last week and James the week before. And now I, again, as I said, have the privilege of closing us out here at the ending of Jonah and today is a shorter passage, starting in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, just through 4-4. Four, four. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. I'd like for you to read along or listen with me. And then after I've read, we're going to go back and unpack the text. Okay? So follow along with me in Jonah 3, starting in verse 10. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. And God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Again, as a reminder, Jonah, after he's vomited back out upon the land, goes to Nineveh and kind of half-heartedly, as Eric says, 
preaches the message to Nineveh, and they repent and change, and God relents from the disaster that he was going to bring. And now, again, it says in 10 that he saw what they did, and he wasn't going to do that, and he did not do it. And really quickly, immediately, right into the next chapter, the greatest word in the Bible I sometimes say is but, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was mad. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, this is not what I said when I was, was this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) Jonah's mad. He's upset, and God comes to him and says, is your anger justified? Again, my question for us is, how do we justify ourselves? How do we end up in a place where we're angry at God? Well, first, I think it's one way, and it's sort of a progression, is we misuse the Bible. We misuse the Bible. And let me explain how I get there. Look again with me at verse 2. It says in verse 2 that he said, Isn't this what I said in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If we know our Bibles, that's actually an allusion and a partial quotation of Exodus chapter 34. Right before, I mean, Moses on the mountain, right before they make the golden calf. And then, Moses goes down to intercede and say, hey, what are you guys doing? And then he goes back up to talk to God about it. That's, that's a quotation from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And Jonah quotes it, but he only partially quotes it. I have an image here for us on the back of the screen contrasting here what's going on, and hopefully it's uh, big enough to read, but as you can see, he doesn't use the full text of Exodus 34, and actually this is also used in Joel 2.13, where the emphasis is more on God's mercy to the Israelites, not on God's mercy to uh, the Assyrians um, in Nineveh and everything like that. But as you can see, he leaves out a whole lot of it, but he gets some of the important parts. But you know what he forgets? He forgets the affirmation of punishment to the guilty. He's, in a sense, misusing or misquoting, relying on only parts and allusions to this passage. And he's misusing what it fully says. And in his mind, God is only the God of mercy, not the God of who punishes the guilty. And again, at the end, you can see that he adds who relents from punishment. Jonah has a distorted view of God, which we're going to unpack here in a second. But again, missing is the affirmation of punishment to the guilty, and added is the relenting of punishment. Jonah thinks that God is all just mercy. God couldn't possibly have anything to do with 
being just. And Jonah's angry about it. He knew this was going to happen. He said, God, I know you're merciful. And the fact that you're not going to, he sniffed out and thought that maybe God would bring mercy to the Ninevites. And that's partially why he left from Tarshish. Again, a, a narratival filling in of the gaps here at the end of the book. Jonah is misusing the Bible. Only leaving out or including the parts that he thinks are who God is. Jonah was selective, and unfortunately, we can be too, for our own detriment. That's why I'm wearing the shirt today. Uh, and actually, I'm not just, it's, Brian's gone. For those of you that know, he's on sabbatical, and it doesn't mean that, you know, we're just letting it all hang loose or anything like that, Okay. <laughs> This was for a purpose. I already had a couple people comment on my shirt. Um, but it says that I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Kudos to my mother-in-law for making me this shirt. <clears throat> but um, sometimes we do these things. And, I, and I'll get to this particular text in here in a second. But we misuse the Bible sometimes when we don't go to the Old Testament enough. I mean, if you were to look at your Bibles, the Old Testament is the bulk of it. And the Christians, Christians from, the beginning, from the beginning have claimed the Old Testament as part of their canon. We misuse the Bible when we don't spend time in the Old Testament and even seek sometimes to unhitch ourselves from it. See it as outdated and old, antiquated, not worthy of our attention. We'll focus on Jesus and that other God of the Old Testament. Leave him out of it. Then sometimes we just cherry pick verses as this one. Philippians 4.13. In the context, Paul says, of having highs and lows of in, his, in his imprisonment. So it would be valid to use this talking about after you've gone through valleys and mountaintops, when you've been poor and when you've been, ri- when you've been rich, uh, rich and poor, and all those other things. If you're using it in that way and saying that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who's got me through that, that's great. But if you're using it for football or other sports or things like that, that's probably a misapplication. Or another one, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, the plans to prosper you and, and prosper you and all these other things. That's to, to, to Israel, coming up out of the Babylonian exile to the, to the elders and the leaders there. And so while maybe we can you know, try and get there for the Israel's promises are, are to now the church and different things like that, that's a conversation for a different time. It's, it's at least coming up out of exile, so if you're talking about a difficulty that you've had, where really God has scattered the Israelites and, and punished them for their wickedness, and they're coming back to the land, if you're using it in that type of context, you can maybe get there. Or another one that I've seen over the last few years is the flipping of tables, Jesus flipping tables in the temple and making a whip and different things like that. That's, that's all well and good, but we usually use it to justify our anger at all kinds of things and everywhere. Whereas if we're to use that passage correctly, we would probably be more talking, that's Jesus in in Israel, in the temple, his own people, Jesus was a Jew. If we're going to use that type of language, we'd want it to be within the context of the church or God's people, not justifying our anger everywhere. I could go on and on in different things like that for verses being misused and cherry-picked. But all I'm trying to say is, know your context, no ways to use scripture and not because what happens is when we pull things, 
Sometimes we lose what they're saying, and they then begin to become imbibed by ourselves, and we start to have a distorted view of God. Again, more on that. But here's the worst misuse of the Bible. When we don't even use it at all. That's the worst misuse of it. When it just sits on our table dusty. Friends, God has revealed himself in all of nature, but he has revealed himself powerfully and immeasurably in the Bible. And when we crack that open, every time you crack it open, you're not going to be like, oh, Holy Spirit, there you are, baby, come on. That's not what's going to happen. Slowly, but over time, when we read God's word, when we let it soak into ourselves, when we turn those stories into our stories, when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, it changes us. So the worst misuse would be let it sit dusty on our shelves. And I pray that we don't do that. But let me give you hope. Hope as, as Christians, again, we're coming to this as Christians. We claim the whole Bible as pointing to and about, in various ways, Jesus, our Savior. And so we can find life in this book as the Word of God. Don't misuse it. Don't leave it sitting aside on the table. Don't cherry-pick verses. Because God has given us life through this just as he's given us the ultimate life through Jesus Christ, his son. Let us remember that. Let us cling to that. As Christians, we have hope that this isn't some dusty old book, that this can give us life. Let's not misuse the Bible as Jonah has. So we justify ourselves first by misusing the Bible. What I will look at next that comes in the progression here is Jonah's getting an incomplete view of God. So we justify ourselves. We get angry at God when we first misuse the Bible, and then that comes and leads to an incomplete view of God. Did you catch what Jonah said? Look with me again in verse 2. It's one of the key verses of this whole passage. He says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For, listen, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love. Jonah thinks he knows who God is. He has part of it right. I knew that you are that God. And the other part that he gets right is he uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh here. Again, not used, and uh, the last use of it was in chapter 2, when the sailors find out that it's, that it's God behind the storm. They say, alas, Yahweh, save us, spare us. And now here's Jonah Right? That was their disaster. Now here's Jonah's disaster. Alas, God, I knew this is what you're going to do. What well, it was a disaster in the storm for the sailors, now the disaster of God sparing Nineveh is Jonah finally calling out on God's covenant name. I knew that you are dot, dot, dot. When we misuse the Bible, we get an incomplete view of God. And when we have that incomplete view of God, it changes how we operate in the world. It changes how we are as Christians. Let me tell you a story of my own personal journey through this. I don't quite have it all pieced together, and I haven't meditated on this too much, but it came up to me as I was preparing this sermon this week. 
When I was a teenager, like some of my own teens that I pastor weekly, I had a view of God's holiness and his righteousness, his his set-apartness, that he was so other and that I was sinful. And I think that was right and a good thing. But here's the thing that happened. Because I don't think I was aware yet of the deep riches of the Bible and the gospel. Is that I let that view be my main view. Kind of of this God who was willing to smite me whenever I sinned. And any time that I did sin, this book and prayer were far from my mind. I thought, how could I ever possibly approach a holy, good, and righteous God, a wretch like me? And over time, through wise counsel, I think through better theology, through reading my Bible and reading some of Paul's letters like the book of Galatians and and reading Romans and different things like that, I began to see, though, that while I am a sinner, I'm saved by grace. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in me now, I have that access to God. And that really, in, in some sense, I can't flee from God just as the psalmist declares but I, I, I have access to him. And it doesn't excuse my sin. God is grieved by that. But instead of running and having nothing to do with God, I should go when I have sinned to him as my well, to him as my mediator, as my savior, because there's grace for me there. Again, the beautiful thing about when we're talking about the, the temple earlier and, and, and the, the understanding of theology of the Holy Spirit is God's presence chose to dwell upon certain people with the spirit and anointings of kings and then his presence dwelling in the temple. But he didn't have to. He could flee it. We saw that in the exile. Here's the thing that's incredible about the New Testament. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, that same spirit now dwells in us. That, that he takes up residence within us. And, it, and, and instead of us going and needing to be cleansed to go into the temple, that his very presence within us has cleansed us. Notice that Jesus did not have to go and be ritually clean before he, or uh, did not have to be ritually cleaned after he went and touched people who were unclean. Jesus reached out to people that others wouldn't because they would have to then run away and go be cleansed and wouldn't be approachable and, uh, and all these other things. Jesus went to the people who wouldn't be touched, couldn't be touched by the law. And he made them clean. He made them whole. Friends, that is the truth for you if you are in Christ today. The Spirit dwells within you and has cleansed you And instead of running from God when you sin, remember that you already have a prodigal God who is there to welcome you with open arms. May you never forget that. God dwells in us. We are a holy temple now. There's no distance. Remember that. And remember to cling to a complete view of God, not an incomplete one. So again, 
How do we justify ourselves? How do we end up being angry at God like Jonah was? Well, we first misuse the Bible and have an incomplete view of God like he did. And then finally, we really become self-righteous. Look with me again at Jonah 4. Look at verse 1. This is one of those just cool textual things that you don't get in our usual English translations. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And in, in, in kind of closer to the Hebrew would be, and it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. When God saw, verse 10, what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster, translated disaster there. It's the same word, uh, the, the, um, the evil there. So when God turned from his ra'ah, would be the Hebrew, Jonah is upset about that. The, the, the God relented from bringing disaster. Jonah sees that as an evil thing. He was angry. Again, the, the Hebrew word here connotes a kind of hotness, boiling mad. I always think of, I don't remember the Pixar movie now, but that one angry guy that was the, about the emotions and all those other things, and his head just, boom, explodes off. Jonah's hot. He's mad. He's ticked. And remember what God says. Do you do well to be angry? Really, is your hotness, is your anger justified? Here's the heart of the matter that's what's going on in Jonah. God and others are wrong, and I am right. When we become self-righteous, God and others are wrong, and I am right. And really, at rock bottom, that's what's going on here with Jonah, is that he's in the right. He thinks that God should do it this way, not that way. And let me say something really quickly here. It's okay to cry out for justice, to be angry when there is injustice in this world. And in fact, I would say our hearts are operating rightly when we are upset about injustice and the wrongs that people commit against each other. That is a good thing to be upset about. But we must remember that, at least specifically like in Jonah's context here, that even God, that God can even be merciful to those people that we are angry at, that we think have committed a great injustice. God can choose to be merciful to them too, like he has been merciful to you as well. We must remember that God can be merciful even to people that we think don't deserve that mercy. Remember again, Jesus, one of the, some of the people that he constantly fought were the religious leaders and the Pharisees. They would get mad at him, so mad, mad enough even to figure out a way to bring him to the cross. They were angry that Jesus was breaking much of what they built their tradition on. Much. And, and again, the Pharisees were seeking to protect the law. They were doing, they were doing a, a good thing at face value, but they distorted it through going above and beyond the law. They'd gone further and further and distorted it to where it was crushing law. Jesus, though, chose to extend mercy to the people that the Pharisees and the religious leaders 
wouldn't touch with the 10-foot pole. Jesus went and ate with sinners and tax collectors is how the Gospels describe it. Those people that really, in the Pharisees' eyes, didn't deceive God's mercy, didn't deserve God's mercy. The heart of the matter when it comes to becoming self-righteous is that I am right and others are wrong. That I, 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 and, and including God. And really think about it. Have you ever been angry at God? Generally what has happened is something that you clung to that maybe was in the place of God was then taken away. And all of a sudden your anger boiled up within you. And you couldn't help but be angry at God. Again, I want to say there should be space for us to talk back to God, to say, God, I do not get this. I am upset. We look at the Psalms and how often they cry out to God, saying, where are you? What are you doing? Please come. It's okay to have that, but when we have this anger that is boiling and hot, when it is quick, we're generally in the wrong and generally have to ask ourselves, that thing that was taken away, that thing maybe that I've propped up, had it taken too large a chunk of my heart? Because when it was all of a sudden removed, I've then exploded in anger. You see, Jonah was confused. How could God be merciful to these Ninevites and still be our covenant God to the Israelites? He couldn't, he couldn't square together how God could be both merciful and just, not only to the Israelites, but to all the nations. He couldn't figure that out. And he had thought, well, at least I know God can protect his covenant people. And the Ninevites being an enemy, well, they deserve the punishment. He had his, I think, as a good thing, he had his Israelites, his fellow Israelites in mind, his nation he wanted to protect. But in some way, somewhere along the lines, that had become God, so to speak, not Yahweh, who could extend mercy and grace to all nations, not just the Israelites. When we become self-righteous, it ends up being that at rock bottom thing that says, I am right. Others are wrong, and God is wrong. So again, how do we justify ourselves? How do we end up in a place that we're angry at God? We misuse the Bible, which then leads often to an incomplete view of God. And then finally, it leads to us becoming self-righteous. What I want to do to close in my last kind of mo movement and conclusion is this. Remind us that we do have hope. As you recall, Eustace Clarence Scrub, uh, he doesn't stay a, a scrub, so to speak, if I could use that language, okay? Uh, he ends up becoming, in a sense, saved. Here's how that happens. Eustace, again, is a, is a rotten, good-for-nothing, complain-all, who uh, they end up in, on an island one day, and again, he's just mad at everybody, and he ends up getting lost. And he goes to, uh, well, he thinks when he's going up a hill, and then he goes down into this pit. 
And all of a sudden, he realizes to his terror that there's a dragon there sitting on a cave of gold. Eustace is terrified. Well, then all of a sudden, the dragon comes out and he thinks, oh, no, this is the end. I'm going to die. The dragon, though, dies. And Eustace thinks, oh, wow, good. He goes then and sleeps on the pile of gold. And what happens when Eustace awakes? He thinks that there was another dragon in the cave, but what has happened is he's turned into the dragon himself. And to speed it up, what ends up happening is Eustace realizes that that's a really self-picture of himself. That he's a dragon. And he has hurt many people along the way because of it. Eventually, though, Aslan comes, the great lion, the Christ figure, to help him. And he says, I want you to go and, and uh, wash, but before you do, you have to take off your clothes, your dragon skin. And Eustace tries with all his might to claw his skin off, and he just quite can't. And here's what happens. Aslan eventually comes and uses his own claws, his terrible mighty claws, to rip off the dragon skin and bathe Eustace in that water. It's an image and a picture of how Christ helps us when we can't help ourselves, when we've become self-righteous, when, when try as we might try to remove our scales, when we've ended up becoming that angry know-it-all. Christ helps us. It's painful. The claws dig deep, and it's, it's painful. But we are made new because of Christ. And what do you know? Eustace comes back eventually, and he's not perfect. He's got work yet to do, but everyone notices the change. My remedy for us at the end of this sermon is, is this, to remember what Christ has done in your life. And to remember that this whole Bible speaks of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. And that we should not misuse it because it will then lead to an incomplete view of Christ. A Christ that is either weak and good for nothing for our own spiritual life, or a Christ that is mighty and powerful but also calls us to repent and turn from sin. We don't want to have an incomplete view of God and become self-righteous. And my challenge to you is to, one, ask, have I become maybe self-righteous? Do I have an incomplete view of God? Do I need to pick up and read the Old Testament? Do I need to learn what it means to be even a Christ follower? I pray that we will remember Jonah's journey that he was livid, that he was angry. And that had started even before this episode. And I ask us to question ourselves, to ask, have I become self-righteous? Have I now imbibed an incomplete view of God? And do I sometimes misuse the Bible? I pray that that would not be us. I pray that we would cling to the whole story, the whole good news of God's saving grace in our lives. Let me go ahead and pray for us.
Our Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity and the chance to now come before you as people who have been saved by grace. People who don't need to be self-righteous. We don't have to always be right. And in fact, we are close to the kingdom of God when we realize that we are wrong, when we realize that I've screwed up, when we realize that I can't do it on my own. Jonah thought that he could do it better. He thought that he could do God's position in a better way because he couldn't square and reconcile his incomplete view of God. How could God be both merciful and just? How can he extend mercy to even those Ninevites? And yet, how could he continue to let us be his covenant people? May we never forget that that's one of the great mysteries of our own lives, that while we were yet enemies of yours, that while we were yet sinners, your son Jesus Christ died for us on our behalf. And through his cross and through the resurrection, you, our Father, were able to be both merciful and just, to let Jesus be both just and the justifier. Help us to use our Bibles rightly, to have a complete view of who you are, and to remember that we can't be right with you of our own doing. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.